This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Brandon J. O'Brien, welcome to Viral Jesus. Every time you read the Bible, you're having a cross-cultural experience. The Bible was written a long time ago in a culture that we don't share and in languages that we don't speak, and they have customs and assumptions that we don't know anything about. And so when we open the Bible, we're stepping into a new culture. But because it's a familiar book for a lot of us, and because it's in English, we kind of miss all of the cues that we would have had if we gotten on an airplane and traveled somewhere that we were having a cross-cultural experience. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible is a book of writings from people who lived in the Middle East and that just maybe there are times we are reading our own Western bias or our own cultural context into a book written by Middle Eastern Jews? For example, I have often heard people assume that when Moses marries Zipporah, he has married below himself because she was a dark-skinned Kushite. But in the Bible, it's the Hebrews who are the slave race. Is it possible we are reading our American history of the enslavement of dark-skinned Africans into this text? Because actually the Kushites were highly respected during Moses' day. They were well-trained warriors. It is possible and probably more likely that Aaron and Miriam mocked Moses for what they perceived was him yet again, the palace boy yet again placing himself above the Hebrews and marrying a Cushite woman. What else may our Western worldview cause us to misread in scripture? Our guest today is Brandon J. O'Brien, who is one of the co-authors of the wildly successful book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Brandon J. O'Brien has a PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is the co-author of a book that was my number one most impactful book read last year, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and is Director of Content Development and Distribution for Redeemer City to City, an organization that supports church planting in global cities. Brandon is also the co-author of Paul Behaving Badly. So, Brandon, I do this thing when I have guests on where I like to read to them. I stalk their social media. And so I read back to them something that I found that I thought was interesting. Here's what I've got for you. It's from your Twitter. You say this, in my own Bible reading, I usually spend a lot of time in a few books each year. I'll read and reread. Sometimes I take notes, summarize chapters or sections and noting repeating themes or phrases, noting anything that reminds me of some other section of scripture. A couple summers ago, for example, I read and reread Judges. I was stuck in Samson's story by some parallels with the patriarchs in Genesis. So after Judges, I spent a few weeks in Genesis. Anyway, I rarely follow a plan. (laughs) Plans are great, but not having a plan is great too. (laughs) And I loved that because I'm some, it was kind of freeing for me. I am somebody who, so I read this J.I. Packer quote. Hmm. 
um, that said any Christian with his, I've added her or her salt will read their Bible cover to cover every single year. And so mm-hmm. I started reading my Bible cover to cover every year. I'm on my 12th time through. Wow. And so when I read your thing, I'm like, Yes. Right. I felt personally convicted that I don't have to do my five chapters a day. Just enjoy it. Right. And be present in the moment. What do you think? What does your relationship with scripture look like? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because just this week I realized that the flaw in my approach is that there are sections of scripture that when I go back to them, I realize I don't really know this part very well because for whatever reason, I get down a rabbit trail and spend a lot of time somewhere else. And so I've been re- reading Ezra and Nehemiah recently and thinking, I hear all these sermons on standing in the gap and you know all the things. Yeah. From, and that's about all I have internalized from Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm rereading it again and thinking, gosh, there's a lot here that I should know and that I am not nearly as familiar with as, say, judges or something, because I do tend to kind of dwell in one place for a long time. So every now and then I have to stop following my own rabbit trails and say, there's this big section I've neglected and I need to go back to that for a while. Um, And so that's what I'm doing now. Ezra and Nehemiah and then the related prophets is kind of where I'm, I'm trying to camp out at the moment to fill in some gaps. Something I'm horrible at is knowing, I know what's in the Bible, right? And I can tell you the book. I'm very bad at chapter and verse. And if I I don't have any tattoos, but if I was to get a tattoo, it would be from the book of Nehemiah. Hmm. I want to say it's like chapter four or five. And he says, now therefore, O Lord, strengthen our hands. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's something I pray all the time. So as you go through it this time, I want you to say, hey, here's Heather's tat. And then send me some fonts that you think would look good. You recently wrote a book called Not From Around Here what unites us, what divides us, and how we can move forward. Tell us about that project. Yeah. So one of those things that I think probably I would redo a lot of that book now in retrospect after it's been now maybe five years of reflection on things. But my goal there, I grew up in rural Arkansas, lived in Chicagoland for a while, lived in New York City. Now we're in Phoenix uh, with some time back in Arkansas. And my sense was always that um, whenever I heard my rural small town friends and family talking about city people, I thought, that's not what they're like. You don't understand what they're like. <laughs> and then I moved to New York and heard people talking about small town and rural people and thought, that's not what they're like. Like nobody, we have these strong opinions about people who live in certain parts of the country yeah. and they don't have any actual knowledge about those parts of the country, but they yeah. do have strong opinions. And so some of what I was trying to do is to say that this in my experience, this also factors into our Christian ways of relating to each other that a lot of, you know, I hear talk about the sort of elite Christians and often those of people who are in more urban areas and other kinds of Christians. And we don't necessarily use the urban and rural designation, but a lot of the ways we approach culture do kind of fall out in those urban and rural categories. And so I was just trying to write sympathetically about both groups and why people are reasonable for drawing certain conclusions based on their experiences and that sort of thing. Um, and trying to show what that what difference that can make for our discipleship and reading of scripture if we take those experiences of other people seriously and let them shape us. And this was all sort of pre-COVID and other things. And so I think 
there are places where I'm pretty optimistic <laughs> that I might be I less see. optimistic now. I see. Uh, and I've done other homework that I think it was definitely written from my experience as a white person living in all of those places. And I think it's been interesting to do more reading on experiences of other people in those same places and realizing that, wow, my perception even of like my hometown is biased. Uh, you know what, I'm, from my own point of view. And so I think I do a pretty good job cl clarifying in there that this is not all entirely objective. This is my experience, but um, I think I would love to at some point kind of go back and develop out some things that, you know, make it a little more complex. Isn't that like the problem with putting your thoughts down on print paper where people will read them. We're going to talk in a little bit about your book that you co-authored, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, but um, I, I won't even, I, even mentioning it, now I want to fangirl over it. I don't want to talk about it yet, but I'm saying when you have something that's lived for so right. long, you don't even think about how you may change, right? right. 10 years down the line or five years oh, down I the know. line. Talk yeah. to me about that. Just about what it's like to have a book that I well, I read just last year. I know, I think, did it come out in 2012? Uh, yes, it was 2012. So it's so 10 years 10 old years this year. 10 years in, right? I, know. Yeah. I just read it. So I'm a newbie to it. I read <laughs> Paul Behaving Badly in like five days um, recently, I, right before, I got it in at my 2021 reading list. So I did it right before the new year, but. Oh, that's great. What happens when you have a book that oh people gosh. are just reading and say, can I interview you about that book you wrote a <laughs> decade ago? Let's talk about that as if it's brand new. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the risk. And, you know, the the writing process, as you know, is maybe the writing process is a year or so. And then the prep for print process yes. is like another year. So it's even true that like by the time your brand new book comes out, you think, uh, I probably would do that chapter yeah. differently, you know, which is really kind of terrifying. So yeah, I think so 10 years things, I, I feel like some parts of misreading scripture, for example, aged pretty well. Others didn't. Listen, I just oh. read it brand new and I loved it. I think it is, I, I'm not just saying this because you're uh, on here. I never give compliments I don't mean. I <laughs> genuinely believe it is the best book I read last year. And oh, I, wow. every women's conference I spoke at this year, I told every woman there, you have got to read this book. And I have had so many of them follow up with me and say, thank you so much. This changed my life. And oh, now wow. I'm like, hey, now get Paul <laughs> behaving badly. And now I'm going to get this one, which we'll talk about again, uh, not from around awesome. here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I think, you know, when we wrote it in 2012, it was the media was still talking about being in a post-racial America, right? Because of uh, Barack Obama was president and there was this kind of new uh, optimism about race relations. And so we have a chapter on race and how that factors in the scriptures, how our assumptions about it blinds us to the way it works in the scriptures. Yes. But even then, I think that I was reading the intro recently and thinking, I don't think anyone after 2016 could say, isn't it something that our colorblindness and our post-racial right. America affects us in this way, right? So I think even within just a few years, the contents of the, of the scripture engagement and things are basically the same. But I think the frame has shifted pretty significantly in the last 10 years. Or even I've heard feedback and have taken it to heart about the David and Bathsheba story. And I think after Me Too and Church Too and other things, the frame for how you engage that story shifts. And so I feel like there's been a lot of cultural change in the last 10 years. And when you're writing about how our 
cultural location shapes how we read and that culture is constantly changing, right? that's a, a real challenge. So I think the, uh, yeah, I, it, it's a little intimidating to revisit. And because it's coming up on 10 years, I was rereading some sections and some of it I thought, hey, okay, we did all right. And other sections I Stand thought- Stand the I test would, of time. <laughs> I would do that differently. <laughs> so uh, it's a mixed bag, but- um, You wonder what I felt like in some ways it was before it's time. I really, I think if that book was to release now, it would have even, I mean, it had a great impact as it was, but an even larger impact because I was going through, I do a lot of stalking before I have somebody on the show (laughs) and I was watching some of your guys' interviews and I saw there was some resistance to the idea that Westerners would even have a bias when it comes to, I I could hear it in the questions that were being posed to you. Did you experience that? I I don't think you'd get that as much today. That's a great observation. And I think- I said this maybe two years ago. I spoke at a church in New York City. It's a church that I know and love, love the pastor. But the congregation, it's in Queens. The congregation is extraordinarily diverse. And I, I remember I preached in the morning and then did like an afternoon workshop. And I remember telling them that usually it takes me most of the workshop to just convince a white Western audience that you have a culture and that that culture <laughs> shapes the way you engage the world and interpret everything. And in this multi-ethnic and multinational group in Queens, it took about four minutes and everybody's like, yep, we have a culture. It affects everything. On we go. And I thought, this is great fun because usually (laughs) we're trying to sort of like introduce the idea that the book is important and they already bought it and we're ready to go. Um, And I agree. I think that the the, the, um, cultural conversation, the kind of public discourse has shifted so much in the last 10 years that we don't necessarily have to make a case for the book, the need for the book. Um, And I think that's sometimes some of my insecurity with it is that it was a very introductory, and I agree, a little bit before the curve 10 years ago, but now I feel like there's a lot of things that we might want to include because because the conversation has shifted. I do worry that maybe adding too many things would kind of spoil the it, it works well as an introduction. And if we tried to do too much, it it might not work so well. <laughs> so so I agree. It's been um it's been interesting to see how a lot of conversations have caught up with some of the things that we were trying to suggest in that book. Uh I think I do run into people who feel discouraged that they live in a very, especially if they live in a very homogenous or monocultural place, that they they wonder how could I ever see things outside my own experience or perspective if I don't do all this research and I don't do all this homework, you know? Mm. And I think, well, it's actually pretty easy for people who live in a more multicultural space. Just find someone who's not like you and say, what's your gut instinct when you read this passage? And you'd be surprised that they have a totally different gut instinct than you do. And it doesn't mean they're right or you're right. It just means that now we're beginning to kind of see what our assumptions are, right? But some of that honestly goes back to the what I took as some of the premise of the book, which is that in our Western context, there's very much this idea that you study scripture alone. Mm-hmm. But what if it's meant to really be experienced together? And what if we never have the whole picture mm-hmm. if we're only ever engaging with it alone, as opposed to like a more communal society where we're doing this work together? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I've been really influenced since the book came out by the historian theologian Andrew Walls, who um, was a Scottish theologian. He was Anglican, sent to Africa in the you know mid twentieth century to teach. Christian history, and then realize pretty quickly, like, this is a first generation of Christians I'm talking to. They're they're reliving Christian history, like <laughs> it's starting over. And so instead mm. of saying, "Here's all the stuff you should know," he started saying, "What can we learn from this kind of first generation Christian community in a new cultural context?" His kind of guiding metaphor was that humanity is kind of watching a play. And the gospel is is played out on the stage. And where you sit in the auditorium shapes what you're seeing. Yeah. Right. And so for some people, the main characters are kind of a backstage, and for some, they're sort of front stage. And you really can only make sense of what you're seeing based on where you're sitting. And so it's not that you have n- no view of what's going on, but you do have a particular view from where you're sitting. And ideally, like everybody goes to dinner yes. after the play and says, tell me what you saw, right? Or tell me how you experienced that. And I think I've been really shaped by that sense that we do misread from a Western perspective because the biblical authors and audiences did not live in a Western culture. So they took different things for granted. Okay, wait, unpack that because we haven't even gone there. So, so yeah. tell them what you're saying. Sure. What does that mean? <laughs> we misread. Yeah, so our assumption in the book is that Every time you read the Bible, you're having a cross-cultural experience. The Bible was written a long time ago in a culture that we don't share and in languages that we don't speak, and they have customs and assumptions that we don't know anything about, right? And so when we open the Bible, we're stepping into a new culture. But because it's a familiar book for a lot of us, because it's in English, we kind of miss all of the cues that we would have had if we gotten on an airplane and traveled somewhere that we were having a cross-cultural experience. And so when we read, we don't adapt and we don't assume that we're going to miscommunicate the way we might if we had all these other cues like language or dress or whatever, right, in a cross-cultural experience. And so we just, when we don't understand something, we kind of import our own assumptions. We say it's the things that go without being said. It's not that we're actively twisting scripture. It's that if the Bible says something that is unclear the way we fill in the gap is just with our own experience. But our own experiences are so different from the experiences of the original authors and audiences that they would have filled in those gaps with totally different information and experiences and assumptions. And can you give some examples of those? One of them, and this might not, I should let you pick your own. One of them for me was when you talked about time. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That chapter on time, I was like really thrown (laughs) by. Because in our Western culture, time means yeah. on time. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> or chronological. chronological time, exactly. So a, an example that I like that's related to time. So when we talk about time, you know, there are different terms in Greek, like chronos is the time like on a calendar or on a clock. And then kairos is sort of a season or a moment or a, you know, a generation. And we live in a culture, in a society where everybody has the chronos time on your phone or on your wrist or on the wall. Like we're so conscious all the time of the, um, the time of day and the date on the calendar and the year in history, etc. But many other cultures don't have that sort of orientation to time. They think more in terms of their 
um, is it the appropriate season? So like with beginning of church, I think mm. this even happens, probably happens in the US. I don't know, internationally it happens where time church begins when the time for church arrives, right? So if the service is at 10 o'clock, you start at 10 o'clock. There are other parts in the world where- We're going to teach them to show up right. on We're time, start right? We are not early. waiting. <laughs> so they're in their seats, right? In other parts of the world, you wouldn't start a service until all the people have arrived or until the important mm. people have arrived. And the same would go with a wedding. The wedding doesn't start at one. The wedding starts when all the guests have arrived. And so you might not say that the wedding is on Saturday at one o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. You would say the wedding is Saturday. And when everyone gets there, we have the wedding, right? And that makes more sense for people who aren't necessarily carrying a timepiece on their body. And in mm -hmm. a society where you're not, again, think about the biblical audience. They don't have public transportation. They don't own cars. They don't, you can't expect someone to show up at a fixed time on the, right? They've got business affairs and they've got other things. And so, yeah, so our orientation is much more fixed time. The way that affects kind of how we understand and interpret things too is that we very often equate sequence with meaning. So things happen in a certain order yes. and that's how we know this happened, therefore this happened, therefore this happened, right? And so the order things happen and are important for what they mean. It's a problem when we read the gospels and you read accounts in Jesus's life that happen in a different order in different gospels. And a lot of arguments have been made over time that the fact that the sequence is different in the different accounts means either that none of them are right or that one of them's right and other ones are wrong. And I think the original audience would have said, it doesn't really matter what sequence these things happen in. What matters is the way we arrange them so that this story is beside that story to illustrate a point, right? And so this, even the arrangement of, you know, kind of time of day versus things happening at the appropriate time or um, sequence having such a significance about meaning versus you just put all the events in a pot. It doesn't really matter what order they go in. <laughs> you know, we sort out the meeting as we go. Right. I think those are pretty significant things and they're things that we don't ever ask. So they just go without being said. They're just things that we assume without any thought are right and good and significant. Uh, or you, you only really consider your views on these things when something challenges them or interrupts them. And so my good friend, freshman year of college down the hall was Nigerian. He and I had a very different relationship with time. It was constantly frustrating to me. Um, <laughs> but what it meant kind of relationally is that our time together was never hurried. He was never looking at the clock, wondering where he should be next, because right now is the time for fellowship. Not right now is the time for friends. And that time could last 18 hours, which come, sometimes was a shock to me. But that's just a different default orientation, right, to, to, right. to time. And so I think that um, maybe a good example, a little abstract, but hopefully that helps, um, yeah, to illustrate. And when I was reading the book, I don't even know if I told you this, I signed it actually for my graduate course on communication ethics. I wanted them to think about just how we bring our own biases and ethics into reading oh, scripture wow, yeah. um, and what, how it affects our communication. But as I was reading that part on time, I was really struck by, you know, all the effort that over the years we've put into in discerning when God will return yeah. and when the people are yeah. ready. Yeah. What time, 
when it's ready. That was like so good. <laughs> yeah. It was so good. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting. We don't go into deep detail about this in that chapter, but it is interesting how we moralize things like time. So it is first is kind of an impulse that we just in the West will organize based on, you know, units of 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. One of my favorite Christmas movies is about a boy. And in that movie, the Hugh Grant's character, uh, is single and um, wealthy and he breaks his day into units like one unit getting my haircut, you know, one unit playing pool or whatever. And I think that is kind of how we operate in the West. And so if somebody shows up late, that's not a neutral thing. That's a moral. They've wasted my time. Mm. Um, They've disrespected me. They've dishonored me by uh, showing up late and breaking an agreement. And I think that is a very different way people who have a different relationship to time also have kind of a different morality related to it, right? So Mm. it would be disrespectful to start the service before the elders arrive because they're a part of our community, never mind what time it says on the clock. Um, Or it would be disrespectful to hurry this conversation. Or So it's, it's interesting to me how we don't just assume unstated relationship to time, but also we have kind of morals built around that unstated relationship to time. And we can get really offended when somebody violates that sense of what goes without being said for us. Yeah. So that in a cross-cultural context becomes a big deal. (laughs) This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, You partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. I have to ask you, how do you think that impacts Sabbath and Sabbath keeping? What do you think if... Oh, wow. Isn't that really deep? Like... Yeah, it is. The time to set aside to not rush and not hurry and just be. Yeah. That's a great question. It's interesting. I mean, I haven't given a lot of thought to this, but, you know, Sabbath becomes almost a metaphor in the Bible. So there's this sort of Sabbath... Um, day, right, on the calendar. There's the Sabbath year, essentially, which is the Jubilee. And then often the eternity is kind of a Sabbath. It's the long Sabbath rest, right? And so I think that is a helpful, again, if we try to put it on the time that it's got to be, you know, 12.01 a.m. on Sunday to whatever, you sort of missed the point. (laughs) It's actually about a way of being in the world for a time rather than the calendar 
you know, requirement of resting. Um, that'd be a great paper or something. I think so too. <laughs> Somebody to dig into. How, how do you think, do you think at all, social media has impacted the way people engage with scripture? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it certainly does shape how we engage. I think on the one hand, one thing it does is it it teaches us to kind of have little aphorisms that we then apply across scripture, right? So like Jesus never said such and such, but these people all, you know, say the opposite or whatever, you know, there's, there's these kinds of like quips or aphorisms that become almost a, a lens for interpreting all of scripture. And I think it's really risky to take universalize those things across scripture. So it's helpful to say, Hey, I've noticed that in this passage, this happens. And I can't think of another time that happens or something, but it's wrong. It's risky to say, you know, Jesus always responds this way to women. So that becomes now the way all of scripture has to be oriented yes. towards a social topic. Does that make Very sense? Very much so. And so I think it it does create lenses. You could almost group sets of lenses that here's how you relate to each other, to the economy, to politics, to whatever. And they begin to create, yeah, filters conscious ones. So it's a little different from what we're talking about. They kind of, uh, they're conscious filters, but they're projections of our unconscious filters, right? If I already assume that the right way to do something is this, then I can find a passage in scripture right. to reinforce it. Right. <laughs> and then that becomes a hard and fast rule for the way I interpret everything else. And that just gets us further from understanding actually than closer to understanding. I also think there's a defensiveness. My rule of thumb has become instead of saying that can't possibly be right, my rule of thumb now is to say, what if that person is right? So what if that person who has this different interpretation is seeing something I don't see mm. and just taking a beat to think through the implications? Twitter does not reward that kind of behavior. No. Twitter rewards the, I say something, you take take me down to the applause of my friends or your friends or whatever, right? And so it, it doesn't, it, it reinforces a kind of clannish way of thinking, which is my people think this way, your people think that way. And it's the exact opposite we're trying to advocate here for, which is to say, my people probably get the things wrong. <laughs> your people probably get things right. So let's put the swords down and talk to each other about it, right? Um, and I think that social media just does not, is not designed to reward that kind of behavior. And you trend better when you right. are mean to each other. Which yeah. is which is a <laughs> really? whole other conversation. But I always... It is. Yes. We're going to restate that yeah. because it's important because I think sometimes that is the temptation because somebody, you know, you'll see somebody go viral by doing whatever hot take. And to me, right. I want to be so humble and so committed and prayerful about the way I steward all of my communication, honestly. Yeah. Um, but especially things yeah. that create negative reaction. And there's a time for that for sure, but it certainly can't be every single time we hit post. That's that's right. That's not giving people life or hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm guilty too. So before anyone goes through my Twitter feed and says <laughs> starts adding <laughs> <Let's> you. <see. laughs> I know, I know. I'm guilty too. But I think it's it's hard. I mean it's hard to nuance in a short space. Yes. But I do think that, you know, to kind of bring it back to misreading scripture, we're an individualistic culture. The West is in general, but America is individualistic and unique and particularly 
striking ways. But once we go to social media, we become pretty collectivist in the sense mm. that like there's a lot of honor and shame battles happening on social media That's good. where you say something bad about somebody I like, and then I pile on you and you haven't said anything bad about me. If we were just pure individualists, I wouldn't care what you said about my friends. But like, if you attack a position, I relate to my in-group, then I'm going to defend my in-group, even if you might be right. I mean, we just suddenly become kind of, we operate in very different ways on social media. And I think our, it, it's, I'm trying to sort this out now myself, honestly, but I think that what social media shows us is we're actually more collectivistic than we think. Our group identities are more important to us than we realize, but you definitely see that play out in the way people attack That's each fascinating. other, I think, or defend each other on social media. I can relate to that a lot. I have a mentor that told me never defend yourself. And so mm -hmm. I've, I've taken that and just let the Lord fight for you in yeah. a lot of situations, but I really do not like when I see people <laughs> being rude or just super aggressive or, yeah. I mean, even just downright trolling, bullying yeah. to people that I respect. Yeah. I will jump on <laughs> in a heartbeat to defend the honor of somebody that has been very... I have to ask you this question. Yeah, sure. I read Paul Behaving Badly in like five days. <laughs> And I want to talk to, I'm, I'm a woman who works a lot in ministry, young adult mm -hmm. ministry and women's ministry. And so I really appreciated the book, especially the chapters that you did on women. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you feel are some of the misconceptions? Because, you know, especially right now, Paul has not aged well, I think, in the age of social media. Yeah. Because no, you know, we can't be offended by anything, which I personally, God is going to offend you. That's not, <laughs> if you have a relationship with God, he will at some point offend you. He just mm -hmm. will. Um, or else you've probably become your own God. But how do you think we've misunderstood Paul? So I, we deal with this a little in both books, I think. Yes. You know, so I maybe start with misreading scripture as kind of a background. I think one way that we misread Paul and in retrospect, I think we should have called the second book Misreading Paul with Western Eyes. That would I have agree. been a better fit. But anyway, um, one way we misread Paul is I think we tend to, we have a chapter in the book on rules versus relationships and sort of how in the West, we like hard and fast, yes, concrete rules. Should women be pastors? Should they not be pastors? Like, what's the speed limit? How do I get this form, <laughs> you know, signed? Like we want real clear. And a lot of our justice, our understanding about justice is based on the assumption that here's the objective standard and whoever breaks it, no matter who they are, gets the same treatment, right? And I think that makes a lot of sense in individualist culture. In a more collectivist culture, relationships are really important. And so you make exceptions, right? You know this person, you trust this person. So in general, you shouldn't do such and such. But I know this person and trust them, so it's okay if they do it. And we read Paul through that sort of yeah. Western objective lens. I think we should read Paul through the more collectivist, non-Western lens. And so if he says, in general, women should not be pastors, but then says, receive Priscilla, or here's Junia, or here, you know, that kind of, we think that like, nope, it can't, what's the rule and who's breaking it? Yeah. And I think the orientation for Paul and his audience is more likely towards relationships. It's a better idea for men to be pastors for a number of reasons specific, I think, to their cultural context, mm -hmm. education and all kinds of things that were limited. 
but we don't read Paul in that context. We read Paul in our context. Right. And we say, here's what we think about women culturally. Here's what's available to women culturally. And you're being restrictive. I think if we read him in his original context, he's actually being really permissive, but we're missing what's going on because of what goes without being said for us, right? Which is, if there's a rule, if there's an exception to a rule, we want it specified, sure, but how many <laughs> women can be pastors, right? right? Like, we want to be really clear. And Paul's like, not worried at all about this. I think in general, it's kind of the same, like with his rules for elders are, they should not be a new believer, should not be a new believer who is an overseer, who's a pastor, right? They should be somebody who everybody knows and et cetera. Well, that only makes sense in a place where there's quite a few Christians who have been Christians for a while. But you think of somebody like the Ethiopian eunuch, he just gets baptized and then off he goes back to Ethiopia. I, I would assume maybe he could be an overseer wherever he goes, right? right? And Paul would say, sure, well, he's fine. But the rule is, in general, <laughs> don't do it, right? And of course, there are exceptions. So I think that's part of it. I think in Paul behaving badly, one of the things we try to address is some of the language where it says things like women should learn in silence feels, again, restrictive to us because we think, hang on, that that's not fair. Why should they have to be silent? But the front half of that sentence is women should learn, which yes. is not a cultural given in Paul's world, Right. And the second half of that sentence, everybody should learn in silence. <laughs> the person is speaking, you should listen, right? So those the our cultural reaction mm -hmm. to that phrase is pretty different from how Paul's hearers in the first century would have received it, which is to say, oh, wow, he's advocating for women to be as involved in the discipleship process as men. That's an unusual position, right? For us, that's a given. And right. so we hear the restriction. For them, it's not a given. And so they hear permissiveness. And so I think it's important for us to kind of understand like what's the context of his conversation. And sometimes we try to do that without verbalizing what's the context for us as hearers. And I think that's where we're running into problems. So I think it's helpful to say we can excavate Paul's context and never deal with our own and still project stuff into the Bible, right? But if we just sit down and say, okay, when I hear this, I feel this kind of way. Why do I feel that kind of way? Because I assume this. And then just say, is that what Paul's assuming? Well, that's a good question. Right. Let's find out. But I think our methods and in, in biblical studies and other things give us the impression that we can be kind of an objective reader who is not importing our culture in. And I think the more we believe that, the more likely we will be to bring our culture in. <laughs> and so right. I think I'm all for saying like, just name all of the things. What's your gut reaction to this? What happened? You know, your counselor might ask you, where do you feel that in your body when somebody said, and I, that's a great <laughs> question to ask when you read the Bible. When I read that women should sit in silence, mm. I guarantee you somebody is feeling that in their body somewhere. And like, yeah. what is that? Why is that? What does that communicate to you? Could it possibly be communicating something different? Let's go see, right? And just dragging that process out a few steps rather than just jumping to a conclusion, I think is really important. But I don't know that we have a lot of great resources for having a, that kind of, that's a subjective engagement right. with the passage a little bit, you know, um, or even asking somebody else, I might read that passage and not feel it anywhere. And my, my right. wife may read it and go, hang on a second, that hits me here. And I think, oh, that's helpful. So now she's helping me see something I don't see, right? That's a, kind of getting back to the 
just critical importance of not trying to do this on our own, but trying to read with people and with people who are going to have different assumptions and givens um, as much as that's possible. Absolutely. Adore this book. I asked people (laughs) on Twitter if they could sit down with you, what would they ask? I'm going through some of these questions right now. Okay. Ruth M. Buchanan said, is there anything you've learned or realized since then that you wish could be included? Mm. The short answer is yes. And the long answer is how much time do you have, right? Right, right. But I think maybe the simplest thing, and this may sound oversimple to people, is that the way we've divided the book, we have these, you know, eight or nine kind of habits, Western impulses, the way we react or the way we think. I think I have begun to understand more clearly, like it's not really eight different things. It's one complex of being individualistic, right? That all of these are part of being an individualistic society. And so it's not that we prefer an orientation to time. It's that in the society we live in, it's just it's part of being in this kind of society, which also prioritizes an individual showing up on time, right? Like, so there's these things that kind of reinforce each other. And Randy Richards, my co-author, wrote a book called Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. Which you Um, recommended to me. It's on my list. I have not read it yet, but I will. And he does a really good job connecting some of the dots that we lay out in Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, but starts to show that like honor and shame is not a value so much as it's a way that collectivist cultures operate with one another in sort of the same way that, you know, guilt is not a preference over shame for individuals. It's just because of the way we relate to each other, guilt is what we experience, not shame, right? Or or whatever. So I think one of the things I wish we could go back and add is, is kind of showing how there's a kind of logical connection between these things, that if you're more collectivistic, honor is important because you're part of a group. If you're more individualistic, then guilt is important because we're we're expecting you to act rightly on your own without pressure from a group. And so there's those things that they're connected and they reinforce each other. And the reason I think that's important is because in ministry, so many conversations right now about how individualism is the problem. It's the root of all of our problems. That might be. We also can't (laughs) escape it. Right. Unless we totally changed all of society, we we will always be individualists rather than collectivists. And I think just having that awareness helps me think through what would solutions be, right? How would we have to rethink discipleship in order to change some of those behaviors? Because a lot of the ways we approach discipleship actually reinforce individualistic behaviors. Go read this book alone and get better, that's an individualistic response. Come follow me is a collectivist response, right? Mm. So I think even the way we try to cure individualism sometimes like reinforces it because we're not aware of how the things fit together. This next question actually goes on this exact same vein. Becca Liz says, I read Misreading Scripture. I loved it. A question that has appeared in my thoughts since reading it is, how do we balance the individualism of our relationship with God without crossing the line into thinking the universe is centered on my individual relationship? I think this may sound academic and like I'm not answering the question, but I think it's helpful. I think there's a difference between personal and individual. 
And I think that as a parent of two children, I was an only child, so it took having kids to you know, be able to know what this was like. But like, I have a personal relationship with each of my children, but I also, but we're a family of four, right? And the way they relate to each other. Oh, so good, Brandon. Yes. <laughs> the way they relate to each other is important to me. The way I am just as pleased when they love each other as I am when they love me, right? And so I don't have an individual relationship with my family. I have a relationship with my family, but I have a personal relationship with each of them. And it's different. My relationship with my daughter is different from my relationship with my son because they're different. And the way they relate to each other is different because they're siblings and not parent and child, you know. And so I think part of it would be to say, I don't think that God has individual relationships with us. I think he has personal relationships with us. And I think biblically, even like the story of the prodigal son, you have the the younger son and the father have a relationship. The elder son and the father have a personal relationship but the father is really concerned about how the sons relate to each other, right? And so I think that that is is maybe a model for saying, how do we understand our personal relationship with God in light of our sort of family relationship to the church, to the rest of God's family? That is brilliant. I hope so. I don't think I answered the question, but I said a lot of words. You did in my brain. (laughs) I feel like that's a book. That is fantastic because it reminds us, I've been reading a lot of Martin Luther King for the Mm. last book that I wrote, but he is very focused on community. I think people will miss that and they only think that he's focused on race, which he is, but what he's really focused on is the biblical idea of community. And that there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood of humanity that we are defecting from. And how do we get back to God's original design, which is what I hear in what you're saying, that we have personal relationships with God, but never forget that it's supposed to exist within the context of the family of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think part of being an individualistic society is that we opt in to relationships. And I think part of being in a collectivist society is you don't opt in, you inherit the biblical reality is we inherit our spiritual relationships to one another, whether we like each other or not. We're family, right? But we don't engage in that way. We engage in the individualist way, which is to say, which of these people is going to help me optimize you know, what I want to learn or help me? That's not the calling. The calling is not to opt in to particular relationships <laughs> in the church that are affirming. It's to recognize you've been grafted into this big group. Wow. Like it or not. <laughs> right. And I think that's a difference. I don't know. In, I mean, I'm not a collectivist. I'm not a member of a collectivist society, but I got to think that there's people and families that don't like each other. Right. But it doesn't matter. You still work for each other's good because what's good for you is good for us. And that's something that we are real bad at, I think, in American evangelicalism. And we don't really think of our relationship to God in terms of our relationship to each other. So good. Brandon J. O'Brien is the author of several books. The most recent is Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How We Can Move Forward. I am buying this book. It will be the third (laughs) Brandon J. O'Brien book I've read Uh, in about 12 months, which should tell you how fantastic (laughs) I think he is of a writer and just a thinker. And it's on my list. So if you guys buy it today, we can read it together. It'll be like a book club here on Viral Jesus. (laughs) Brandon, I want to end every interview by asking my guest a question. The show is called Viral Jesus for a Reason. Now, don't get nervous. It sounds like a heavy question. <laughs> you can have a simple answer or a complex. It's up to you. But virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, 
agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived mm. and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? Oof. Wow, that is a good question. The word that keeps coming up in my mind in my my personal devotion right now is walk. It's the um, that the Bible is meant to teach us how to walk. I think we could complicate with strategies, but I really think the best way to show the relevance of the gospel is just to walk in it. Mm. And that's not, I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy, <laughs> I guess, to do it faithfully all the time. But I think, I think we can overcomplicate with strategies, but just the simple act of trying to get up each day and walk together in the way is, I think it's what we're called to do. Thanks, Brandon, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector, both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. I really think today's conversation is so incredibly important. How could our Western culture create blind spots when we engage with scripture? What is our responsibility in reducing those biases when reading the Bible? I am just going to give you some other books that I've read that have been really helpful to me as I've tried to better engage with the Bible. Of course, I recommend Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien, our guest today. They also co-author another book called Paul Behaving Badly, and it was awesome. Also, check out The Forgotten Jesus by Robbie Gallaty. Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson. And right now I'm in the middle of Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth E. Bailey. If you know of other books I should have added to this list, please tag me or tag Viral Jesus on social media because I want to know what you are reading so I can join you. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we talk to author Christy Lauren. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks. And you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick, and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.